funny. Sometimes called the Ark of God, sometimes called the Ark of God who sits between the cherubs because remember the Ark has two golden cherubs on the top which are there as if to guard the presence of God. God's special presence resides on the mercy seat which is the top of the golden box which is the Ark. Ark in the Hebrew means box. And so this is this golden box that is used during the worship of Israel. It was always kept in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, then in the temple. And inside the box, inside the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of God, were the two tablets that were etched by the finger of God, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And also inside the Ark was the, the jar of manna. Remember the, the bread that God supernaturally provided to the Israelites during the 40 years of the wilderness. And also inside the ark was Aaron's rod that budded. The ark is taken captive. The ark is captured by the pagans, something that was unimaginable to the Israelites. At the battle of Aphek, which we've studied, which was between the Philistines and the Israelites, the first day of the battle was very bad for the Israelites. They lose thousands, so they send word to Shiloh, which is where the ark is, which is, it's where the tabernacle is, the ark being in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. And they say, bring the ark, bring the ark. Not because they want the special presence of God among them, but because they want the magic mojo of the ark, because the ark brought blessing. I say magic mojo sarcastically, of course. I'm not trying to be disrespectful or blasphemous, but that is how they perceived it. That is what they wanted from the ark. They wanted some magic. They didn't want to submit to the God of the ark to confess their sins, to repent before Him, to remove their idols. They wanted the, the blessing of the ark, but not the God of the blessing. So sadly, when they brought the ark back to the, the battlefield at the battle of Aphek on the second day as we studied. The second day was worse than the first day and the Israelites lose exponentially more soldiers on day two and in fact the ark itself is captured by the Philistines. It wasn't surprising to us that the two men who transported the ark from Shiloh to the battlefield were Hophni and Phinehas, these two wicked sons of the high priest Eli, these two sons that would engage in sexual activities with the volunteer women at the temple, really turning the, when I say the temple, I mean the tabernacle, turning the tabernacle into a temple of the pagans. That's what the pagans did with their prostitution at their temples. And so those two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, not only engaged in that sort of debauchery at the tabernacle, but they also would steal from God. They would steal the part of the sacrifice that was for God, the fat of the animal, which was really the prize of the animal, right? The reason you pay more for a fat, a steak that is marbleized is because it has fat on it. And God said, that belongs to me. That's mine. That's mine. You burn that fat as an incense to me. And so what Hophni and Phinehas would do is when the, the worshiper would, when, 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 when the animal was, was quartered and was sacrificed, sacrificed and then quartered and cut up, Hophni and Phinehas would say, that's our fat, that's for us. We want the fatty part of the meat. And the, the worshipers would say, no, 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 we're supposed to burn that to Yahweh. And, and Hophni and Phinehas would threaten them with violence if they wouldn't give it 
to Hophni and Phinehas. So it's not a surprise that those who transported the ark, Hophni and Phinehas, those two men themselves were killed that same day that the ark was taken captive. Not a surprise to us because God told Eli through the man of God, through a prophet, an unnamed prophet, and then he told Eli again through Samuel that God was going to remove Eli, the house of Eli. So on the same day that the, that the, the Israelites had this abysmal loss to the Philistines, the same day that the ark is, is captured, the same day that Hophni and Phinehas are killed, Eli himself dies as he falls over and breaks his neck when he hears the, the unimaginable news that the ark has been taken captive. Then, as we studied, the Philistines take the ark because they think just like the Israelite army. They think there's magic mojo in the ark, and so they want the ark to come to their city. But God makes clear to them that that is utterly unacceptable. And so what the Philistines do is they treat they treat the God of Israel like one of their gods and they put the Ark of the Covenant next to Dagon. Remember Dagon is their main God and so the Ark of the Covenant is on display next to Dagon who's on his pedestal. They show up the next day and Dagon has fallen over as if he is prostrating himself before the God of Israel because he's fallen over face down in front of the Ark. They pick him up the next day. He falls again in front of the Ark but his head is cut off and his hands are cut off. This, that is what you do to soldiers when you, when you capture soldiers and you humiliate them and you slaughter them. And so it was as if Dagon himself was humiliated, was decapitated before the God of Israel. The Philistines, this is just by way of review, the Philistines then receive the plague that God sends them. He sends them a plague through mice, through rats. It's a, it's a, a plague of tumors, which is a delicate way of saying it was a plague of hemorrhoids, literally, in the Hebrew. And so the first Philistine city says, get that ark out of here. And they send it to the next Philistine city, same plague. The next Philistine city, same plague. So finally they send the ark back to Israel. Get it gone. Go. Get it. Get it out of here. And they put it because their diviners, their priests, come up with this brilliant strategy in their godlessness, in their idolatry. They put it on an ark. Excuse me. They take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it on a cart with two milking cows. And they separate those milking cows from their calves. And the milking cows miraculously, supernaturally, know where to go. They know to go to an Israelite city, Beth Shemesh. They go down the road. They don't just kind of wander and meander along. And the Philistine lords, the five Philistine lords, it says, are following behind them, chapter 6 of 1 Samuel. They're, they're not guiding them. They're not pulling them by a, 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 a rope. They're, they're following behind them, it says. That's the word, following. Because the milking cows don't go back to their calves that they want to nurse naturally. Instead, they, it says they... They moo along, lowing along. Old English word for mooing. They moo along to Beth Shemesh. And we saw last time in chapter 6 that the men of Beth Shemesh, the Israelites, they're overjoyed. They're celebrating that the ark of God is back. And it's, it's the wheat harvest. Harvest time is a time of celebration. And they celebrate and they get excited. But then they disrespect God. Because... 
They offer sacrifices when they should not be offering sacrifices. It is, to, it is the Aaronic priests who are charged with the responsibility of offering sacrifices. But the Levites oversee these regular men who offer sacrifices, non-priests, and they offer the wrong kind of sacrifice because they sacrifice the two milking cows, the female cows they're to be sacrificing, male cows, oxes, or male sheep or male goats. They offer the wrong sacrifice, the wrong people sacrifice, and then in their absolute temerity and disrespect for God, they open up the ark and they look inside it. And so God slaughters them. He slaughters them. Many of them, as we saw last time, because God is a God of absolute holiness and He is completely intolerant of disrespect. I know we see disrespect of God today in the year 2022 all the time. That doesn't mean that God tolerates it. That just means in addition to Him being holy, He's also merciful. And in His great mercy, He does not slaughter those who use His name in their cuss words. He does not slaughter those in an instant who use His name in a vulgarity or in an expletive. There is a reckoning coming. But what it shows us today is that God is merciful also holy. But today, in His mercy, He gives time to repent. Now there, in chapter 6, when they peered into the ark in their disrespect, God slaughtered them immediately. And they understood that this was all about the holiness of God. Look at verse 20, which is one of the verses that we ended with last time. Verse 20 of chapter 6 of 1 Samuel. It says, the men of Beth Shemesh, Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? We saw that holy is the Hebrew word kadosh. It means awesome, not the way we use awesome. Awesome. That's what it means. Kadosh means awesome. Removed from common or profane usage. Commanding respect. You see... The holiness of God terrified the men of Beth Shemesh after they had disrespected God and disrespected His holiness, His awesomeness, if you prefer. But it didn't just terrify them. It confused them. It bewildered them. Look at the end of verse 20. And to whom shall He go up from us? In other words, from whom among us can be in the Lord's presence? Who among us can fellowship with God? Who among us can commune with God? Who among us can approach God, can approach Yahweh? The answer to all those questions is no one. None of us is worthy to approach, to fellowship, to relationship, to commune with Yahweh. They were so excited about God's presence, which is what the ark symbolized. The ark symbolized the throne of God. The presence, the special presence of God, the Shekinah. They were so excited about God's special presence returning to them. And yet God killed them. They're excited and God kills them for their excitement, so they think. Because they're not only terrified by the holiness of God, they're confused. In their idolatry, because we're going to see their idolatry before the evening is up. In their idolatry, they have blindness towards God. And so they just think of the blessings of God. They think of the magic mojo that they can get of the ark. They don't think about the holiness of God. 
they're bewildered by all of this. They're confused. They do not comprehend the magnitude of their disrespect towards God. They don't understand the magnitude of God's holiness. And the reason for that is because they worship Yahweh on par with the other gods of the Canaanites. Because the Israelites integrated the other gods of the Canaanites into their pantheon. The Israelites had a pantheon of gods just like the Philistines. They do just like the Philistines. They put Yahweh in their basket of gods. No, sure, Yahweh gets more attention than Baal and then and, and, and the Ashtoreth, the other gods. But he's still one God that we worship with the other gods. He's not the exclusive God. This is the problem. This is why the men of Beth Shemesh are not only terrified, but they're bewildered. They're confused as to what has happened as to why God killed them since they were excited for God's presence. How does that work? We're excited that he returns, but he kills us. And they think like this. They think in this blindness, in the spiritual blindness, because of the idolatry that they have. We'll see their idolatry, as I mentioned, in a few minutes. Now, some Bibles translate the last question of verse 20 as this way. And to whom shall it go up from us? Right? I read from the NESB. The NESB says, And to whom shall he go up from us? Some Bibles, like the New King James, will translate it the, the way I just said, And to whom shall it go up from us? In other words, To whom shall the, go, the, shall the ark go up from us? Who will we send the ark to? And the reason some Bibles translate it that way is because the verb in the Hebrew can either be masculine or it can be neuter. It can be he or it can be it. So it's legitimate to translate it as, and to whom shall he go up from us? Or you can translate it as, to whom shall it, in other words, the ark go up from us? I lean more towards the NASB translation here because the context of verse 20 is the Lord and the Lord's holiness. Remember, just before that, in verse 20, you see a reference to the holiness of God. But I'm not going to get real dogmatic about that because I think it can be translated either way. And certainly the next verse, verse 21, is about where's the ark going to go? Where are we going to send this ark to? Look at verse 21. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have brought the ark of have brought back the ark of, the, of Yahweh. Come down and take it up to you. We're not told why the men of Beth Shemesh selected Kiriath-Jearim as the, the place for the ark to go. Shiloh has probably been destroyed by now. Shiloh, as I mentioned, was where the tabernacle was for many, 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 many years. And so in the tabernacle was the ark Shiloh has probably been destroyed by now because when the Philistines conquered the Israelites at the battle of Aphek, they apparently made their way to Shiloh, which is where the ark was, and destroyed that as well. Kiriath-Jearim is located between Beth Shemesh and Jerusalem. We've seen this map a number of times. Here's Kiriath-Jearim. So, you know, the travels of the ark, as we've seen, were from Shiloh to the battlefield at Aphek, 
The Philistines capture it. They take it to Ashdod. They take it to Gad, Gath. They take it to Ekron. Then they say, get that out of here after those plagues. So it's make, it makes its way through, through Timnah and then to Beth Shemesh. The men of Beth Shemesh disrespect it. So, so you have four, five legs that we're talking about. Leg number one, Shiloh to the battlefield. Leg number two to Ashdod. Leg number three to Gath. Leg number four to Ekron. Leg number five of the travels of the ark to Beth Shemesh. And now the ark has made its way on its sixth leg to Kiriath-Jearim. David, about a hundred years from, from this time, will take the ark from, the ark from Kir- Kiriath-Jearim ultimately to its final resting spot, the seventh leg of the of the journey, of the travels of the ark, he will take it to Jerusalem itself when he takes Jerusalem from the Jebusites. Then we get to verse 1 of chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, which reads like this. And the men of Kiriath-Jearim came and took the ark of Yahweh and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated, consecrated Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of Yahweh. We know very little about Abinadab. His son Eliezer, we are told here, was consecrated. Consecrated is the the Hebrew word kadash, very similar to kadosh. Kadash means to set apart. That's what holy means, set apart. Holy means that God is completely other, completely distinct from his creation. In addition, it means that he is absolute moral purity but often the focus like in chapter 6 of the holiness of God was the focus that he is other he's not common and what the men of Beth Shemesh the Israelites did by peeking into the ark was profaning God treating him as if he were common what happens in verse 1 of chapter 7 is that Eliezer is consecrated he is set apart he is kadashed to take care of the ark. Abinadab may have been a Levite, which would have made his son Eliezer a Levite. It may be that that there's a a Levitical line here through Abinadab and Eliezer and their male descendants. I think it's, it's safe to assume that because the Levites who were in Beth Shemesh, remember under the law, the Levites are the ones who are to care for the ark. Not the, it's, it's not the Aaronic priests, it's the Levitical priests. The Levites are, are responsible to care for the ark. For, its, uh, to, for example, when the, when the tabernacle was taken down, so it, was a, it was a huge event, when the tabernacle was taken down and the ark would be transported, the Levites wouldn't touch the ark. You touch it, you die. Don't look into the ark. I mean, that's it, not even mentioned. It's such, it, it, it would be such a, a profaning of the ark. You're not able to touch the ark. Instead, you touch a pole, and you put the pole through the rings on the ark. That's why the rings are there on the side of the ark. So you touch the pole. The Levites were responsible for for the transportation of the ark, for the carrying of the ark. So I think it's reasonable to assume that the Levites of Beth Shemesh, who are saying the ark needs to go somewhere else because the, the Israelites of Beth Shemesh have disrespected God here, and he slaughtered a number of us, I think it's reasonable to assume that the Levites of Beth Shemesh find another Levite, in this case, Abinadab, in this other town of Kiriath-Jearim, and his son Eliezer, 
I think it's reasonable to assume that they are Levites as well. And we don't find anywhere in the Scripture that God punished, that God disciplined the line of Abinadab. It doesn't say anywhere in the Scripture that God disciplined Eliezer or any of his descendants because, as I said earlier, the ark will remain there roughly a century. That's from 1104 B.C., which is when the Battle of Afek was held, to 1003 B.C., which is the first year of David's reign when he brought the ark to Jerusalem. Look at verse 2 of chapter 7. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jearim, the time was long, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This isn't saying that the ark was there for 20 years. It's saying that there was a 20-year gap of time from when the ark arrived at this location at Kiriath-Jearim to when Samuel stood up and prayed for the people of Israel. To, it's that time period of 20 years until Samuel would lead the people in repentance. That's the 20 year that's being, that's being referenced there. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. For two decades, the people of Israel lament. They mourn. They struggle. Why are they mourning? They're mourning because they're in confusion. We celebrated the return of the ark, and yet you killed us, God. They're in confusion because of their idolatry. It's true that the ark was returned by the Philistines, and, it, and it's true that the Philistines were punished by God with this plague. But the people, the Israelites, are lamenting because they think, well, we know about one of the, one of the, one of the, one of the truisms of the world especially of that world, is a secret. It's very difficult to keep secrets. Most people have very, very, very tough times keeping secrets. It's that way today in the year 2022, and it was that way thousands of years ago. The person who can keep a secret is very, very valuable because they honor a confidence. I'm not saying that the, that the plagues to the Philistines were secrets. I'm saying that the plagues to the Philistines, there's no doubt that the word about plagues is horrible as that. A plague is horrible as that. that. A word like that made its way around the region. It made its way into Israel. No question about it. And so the Israelites know God punished the Philistines for disrespecting the ark. Then we celebrate. We offer sacrifices. That's what the men of Beth Shemesh did. We offer sacrifices. We celebrate because the ark's back and God kills us. So they lament. They lament because they're confused. They lament because they're bewildered. They lament because they mourn. Because we don't get it. We celebrate you, God, and yet you slaughter our men. And you don't give us blessing. The Philistines are still a threat to us, even though the ark has come back to us. And the Philistines are a threat to us for 20 years. This isn't three months. This is two long decades. Look at verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to Yahweh with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your hearts to Yahweh and serve Him alone, and He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. This verse is critical to understanding the entire chapter. This is 
this verse, verse 3 and verse 4, we're probably not going to get to verse 4 today, but verse 3 is the key, along with verse 7, excuse me, along with verse 4, it's a key, it's the key to chapter 7. In verse 3, Samuel does what the judges in the book of Judges were supposed to do. Remember, Samuel is the last of the judges. Samuel calls the people to repentance. You remember the sin cycle, right? The people sinned, then God punished them. The sin cycle in the book of Judges. The people sinned, God punished them. They repented, God relented, and then there was peace. Blessing, in other words. That's the sin cycle. So the people have already sinned in their idolatry. God has punished them for decades now with the Philistines. He punished them when they disrespected the ark of God. And now Samuel calls them to repent. I want to focus on repentance. You see repentance throughout the Bible. The the Hebrew word here for repentance is return. Look what he says. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, if you return to Yahweh, return. That is a very, very important word in the Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word shuv. It happens well over a thousand times in the Hebrew scriptures. Shuv. We'll see that in a moment. It is impossible, impossible to overstate the importance of repentance. Let me say that again. It is impossible to overstate the importance of repentance to you and to me, to the child of God. This side of heaven, it is essential. Repentance is essential to your spiritual life. When we get to the eternal kingdom, we won't need repentance anymore. But because we are sinners, we need repentance. We need it like we need oxygen. The unbeliever needs repentance for a relationship with God where he changes his mind. That's what repentance means. That's what shuv means in this context. Or metanoeo in the Greek. It means a change of mind. And that change of mind in the, for the unbeliever's context, for the unbeliever's scenario, uh, scenario is changing his mind about whether to believe in Christ. Is Christ worthy or not? The unbeliever approaches Christ in disbelief. No, Christ is not worthy, the unbeliever says. Why do I need to believe in him? But the unbeliever, in, when the unbeliever repents, he changes his mind and then he shifts. That change of mind produces a change of attitude, which is to say faith in Christ. But it's not just the unbeliever who needs repentance. It's you and me. The believer needs repentance for continued fellowship with God. We need to change our mind about sin, about our sins. Now let me be clear. Confession of sin is what restores fellowship. I mean, that's what 1 John 1, 9 says, right? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Confession of sin restores fellowship. It returns us to, the fe- to fellowship with God. But it's repentance, changing your mind about your sin, your sin pattern, that maintains your fellowship. Because otherwise, we're just, like we saw Sunday morning, we're just in and out, like a yo-yo, right? Confession of sin restores fellowship. But if two seconds later, I love that sin, 
That sin is wonderful. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sin, and I'm going to confess later. Really? Is that your attitude? Because I really want to do this sin, and I'll just confess it later. No. That's an attitude of entitlement. God, you're obligated to forgive me. Because that's what it says in 1 John 1, 9. Right? You promise to forgive me because I really want to do the sin and I'll confess it later and you'll restore me to, to, to fellowship. That's mocking God. It's true. He will restore you to fellowship if you confess your sin. But you must also turn from it to stay in fellowship, to remain in the place of blessing. Samuel says, if you will, in verse 3, if you will return to the Lord, He will deliver you. You take the, the beginning of the, of the verse and you, and you add it with the, the end of the verse. What he's saying is, if you shuv, if you return to the Lord, to Yahweh, He will deliver you from the Philistines. Shuv, the Hebrew word here for return, can mean to turn back, to go the other direction, to repent. Repentance originates in the heart. That's why Samuel refers to the heart, right? He says, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, not half-hearted, not lukewarm repentance, with all your heart, it's the Hebrew Hebrew word for for heart, is levav. It's another way of saying the much more common Hebrew word for heart, lev. It's the seat of our emotions. Sometimes it can mean the pump, that's pumping blood through your body. But here it means the seat of your emotions, the seat of your volition, the seat of your will. It means your inner self. Repentance involves the whole person, the whole heart. And so you never find a description of, you you, you really can't say half-hearted repentance. It's either wholehearted repentance or it's not repentance. Half-hearted repentance is a non sequitur those two things don't go together half-hearted repentance is no repentance at all repentance involves the whole person this is why Samuel says return to the Lord with all your heart the prophet Joel said something similar where he said yet even now declares Yahweh return shuv, to me Joel is quoting Yahweh here return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart, tear your heart. It's an old English word for tear, to rip. Rip your heart and not your garments. Remember the the old custom, the the Jewish custom was to to rip their clothes in mourning. God says, spare me your, 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 your fake submission to me. Spare me ripping your clothes. Rip your heart, because repentance is in your heart. It says, now return... And, and rend your heart, not your garments. Now return, again, shuv to Yahweh your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Evil there is the, the Hebrew word ra'ah, and in this context it means calamity. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what repentance is and what it is not in Christian circles. Charles Ryrie gives a great description of the term and he draws a distinction between repentance and sorrow. Look at what Ryrie says. He says, In both the Old and New Testaments, repentance means to change one's mind. Many people consciously or unconsciously connect repentance 
with sorrow. Sorrow may well be involved in a repentance, but the biblical meaning of repentance is to change one's mind, not to be sorry. The presence or absence of sorrow does not necessarily prove or disprove the genuineness of repentance. The change of mind, however, must be genuine and not superficial. Biblical repentance involves changing one's mind in a way that affects some change in the person. Look at the last sentence there. Biblical repentance involves changing one's mind in a way that affects some change in the person. This is a great way of describing repentance. It's a change of mind, and that change of mind produces a change in the person. For the unbeliever, repentance produces a change of mind. It's a change of mind from a destiny of, of eternal damnation to a destiny of salvation. Look how the Apostle Peter put it for the unbeliever in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So here, in 2 Peter 3, repentance is changing one's mind about whether to trust in Christ. That change of mind produces a change in the person from being unbelieving to being believing in Christ. The repentance produces salvation from eternal destruction. That's the unbeliever. But the believer has repentance as well. For the believer, repentance produces a change of mind for salvation. Unbeliever, repentance produces salvation. Believer, repentance produces salvation. It's a different sort of salvation. It's deliverance from the ugly, adverse consequences of sin in the life Look how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 7, 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful. He's talking to the Corinthian believers. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. He's talking to believers. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Here Paul is talking about repentance for the Corinthian believers so that they will change their mind, change the mind about the sins that they've been engaged in. The Corinthian church is a complete, complete mess. I mean, they've got all kinds of serious sins that they're engaged in. Sexual sins, drunkenness, gluttonous disrespecting the communion table and so Paul says some of you have been killed by God some of you have been made sick by God because you have disrespected the communion table they would get drunk beforehand they would gorge on food beforehand so this church is a mess and Paul is calling them to repentance now as you read this passage in 2 Corinthians 7 and you compare it to the language of Ryrie where Ryrie distinguishes between repentance and sorrow you kind of have to scratch your head a little bit here right i mean second corinthians 7 mentions sorrowful or sorrow five times second corinthians 7 verses 9 and 10 i should say sorrow is the greek word lupe lupe not like you know anybody ever been to lupe tortilla different lupe it's not the spanish name lupe It's the Greek word lupe, which means affliction, sorrow, 
grief. And so Paul is glad for their lupe. He's glad for their sorrow. He's talking about sorrow because the sorrow can and should lead the believer to repentance. That's why he's glad that they have been sorrowful because it led them to repentance. Sorrow in and of itself is not repentance, but godly sorrow can lead the believer to a change of mind. The context of 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10, is that Paul wrote an earlier letter to the Corinthian believers rebuking them, and they were convicted by Paul's letter. That may be the first letter to the Corinthians that we have, or it may be a letter that was in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that's been lost to time, that for whatever reason the Spirit didn't, didn't record for us in the canon. But either way, the context is that Paul wrote them an earlier letter rebuking them for their sins, and they were convicted by Paul's letter. And because they felt remorse, sorrow, lupe, they turned from their sin. You see, God used their conscience to afflict them. God used their conscience to produce pain of spirit or sorrow in their souls. God has many tools that he uses to bring a wayward believer back to him. He has many, if you prefer, many different belts that he uses. When my brother and I were younger and we got in trouble, I, my, dad was a, my dad was a security guard. It was one of the jobs he had. He was a milkman. He was a security guard. And I remember very well, he had this leather belt. And, you know, when we got in trouble, we knew that belt well. I almost say it fondly now. At the time, I didn't, you know but I think back fondly because you know, one, one of the great blessings that a parent can give a child is to teach the child discipline, self-discipline, to restrain the child's own sin nature. Well, God, in a, as a loving father, takes out the belt, and he has all kinds of different belts. He's got a belt that is f- financial difficulties. He's got a belt that is physical ailments. He's got a belt that is, you know, when I say physical ailments, I mean health ailments. He's got a belt that is conflict in interpersonal relationships. He's got a belt of discipline that are legal difficulties. He's got a belt of discipline that, is, uh, that involves the conscience, where the conscience hurts. It's afflicted. He's got all kinds of different ways to discipline his children in love. That's how he disciplines us. He doesn't discipline us. A parent who disciplines a child in anger is doing wrong. The parent should discipline the child in love. I remember my father always said, tougher on me than on you, and I never believed him. But he's right. A father and our heavenly father, exponentially more than a human father, disciplines in love. And so one of the ways, one of the tools that he uses for discipline, one of the belts, if you prefer, is to use our conscience and a healthy conscience when the conscience is exposed to the wrongness of the sin that we did the healthy conscience sees that wrong and there's remorse right it's the unhealthy conscience who sees the wrong if someone says that which you did was wrong or or you read it in the scripture that which you did was wrong the unhealthy conscience says I like that I'm ready to do it again. I like that sin. 
I'm entitled to forgiveness. That's not a healthy conscience. A healthy conscience, when we're confronted with the wrongness of our sin, to use Paul's word in 2 Corinthians 7, feels lupe, feels, is afflicted by it. The healthy conscience says, that which I did was wrong. I'm not saying that we should wallow in our guilt. I'm not saying that we should, you know, you've got to say 50 mea culpas. I'm not saying that. Mea culpa, the old Latin phrase, my fault. No. 1 John 1, 1.9 says we're forgiven. We're cleansed. That even includes cleansing of our conscience. You commit a sin, God forgives the sin. That's what 1 John 1, 1.9 says. And then what are we to do? We're to do what Paul did in Philippians Chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Remember, Paul describes himself as the worst of all sinners. Paul is a, is a man who oversaw the murder of Christians, right? He's watching Stephen's cloak as Stephen is being stoned to death, and he gets authority, he gets papers, letters of authorization from the Sanhedrin to go hunt down Christians and throw them into jail. So he describes himself as the worst of all. In Philippians 3, he describes some of his resume of his sins in the past. And then as you keep going in Philippians 3, when you get to verses 13 and 14, he says, we forget what lies behind and reach forward to to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Are we to wallow in our guilt? No. We're to confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9, and move on and look forward, not in the rearview mirror, because the longer you look look in the rearview mirror, the sooner you're going to hit another car. You move on from your sin. But Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 7 is that sorrow, remorse, that is godly, leads us to a godly place, which is repentance. Notice in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, Paul makes a distinction between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. He says godly sorrow is sorrow that is according to the will of God that produces a repentance leading to salvation. Again, he is talking to believers in the Corinthian church. He's talking about not salvation from eternal damnation. That's already happened for them because they've already trusted in Christ. He's talking about salvation, deliverance from all of the ugly things that accompany a sin pattern. He's talking about deliverance, salvation, from divine discipline, from the belt of God. He's talking about salvation from self-inflicted suffering. Sometimes God doesn't have to take out the belt, right? Because our sin creates its own self-induced suffering. Sometimes God just allows that method of discipline for us. Or sometimes there's loss of eternal rewards. That's the loss that you see there at the end of verse 9, that you might not suffer loss in anything. Paul's concerned about the Corinthian believers losing eternal rewards. So the salvation that is referred to is the deliverance that comes from godly sorrow. Godly sorrow that brings the the person to repentance and confession. But then there's worldly sorrow. Look at that at towards the end of verse 10. The sorrow of the world that produces death. You see, you have two options. You have two options when God disciplines you. In other words, when He causes sorrow in your life. Option number one, allow the sorrow, allow the affliction to change your mind about your sin. That's godly sorrow. Option number two, 
Allow the sorrow, allow the affliction to harden you, to harden you in your sin pattern. That's worldly sorrow. To allow it to produce bitterness in your soul, bitterness for being called out. Why do you call me out for being wrong? Why don't you call that guy out for being wrong? Bitterness for getting caught. Bitterness for being called out. Or maybe you just become more creative. Worldly sorrow produces bitterness and it produces creativity. I'm not going to get caught next time. No one's going to find out that I'm doing this sin. Because now, I'm not going to go confess it and repent, run from it. No, I, I, I like this sin. I love this sin. So now I'm just going to be more creative. Yeah, I didn't like getting caught. Yeah, I didn't like getting called out. But now I'm just going to be more creative. Next time I'm not going to get discovered. Or worldly sorrow can even confuse. It can bring confusion about who God is. That's what's happening in our first Samuel passage. In first Samuel chapter 6 and chapter 7, when they get the ark back, they're confused about why they're still suffering under the boot of the Philistines. What the Israelites need is godly sorrow that produces repentance. So let's get back to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, where Samuel is giving these words. And so bearing in mind this brief study about repentance that we just went through, I want you to, to look at this verse one more time with that in mind, with those goggles on, where Samuel is calling the people to repentance. Verse 3 reads again, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord, think of, if you repent to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord, and serve Him alone, and He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Notice what Samuel does. He gives three direct, explicit instructions for their repentance. Instruction number one, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth. Instruction number two, direct your hearts to the Lord. Instruction number three, serve Him alone. Serve the Lord alone. Let me talk about each one of those instructions. Remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth. This is a recurring, constant problem in Israel. They frequently adopted the gods of their neighbors. This is not unique to Israel. We see it in our culture today. This nation, the United States of America, before World War II, had a different outlook with respect to the living God, to the God of the Bible. After World War II, where we kind of opened the gates to other systems of thinking, beginning in the 50s, 60s, we inject into our culture foreign gods, not just gods of foreign religions, not just the gods of of the Hindu religion, not just the god of Islam, but a much more dangerous god, much more dangerous gods, gods that are intangible, gods like money and power and sex and freedom and equality. By the way, there's nothing wrong with sex or money or power or equality or freedom as long as they're within God's bounds. God invented all of those things. But when we elevate those things and sacrifice to those things as opposed to the the God who created those things, now we 
elevate them as gods. Oh, no, 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 we, we, we don't run off Jesus. Jesus is part of our gods. He's one of our gods. Just like all the other gods. Right? That's what the Israelites are doing. They have multiple gods as part of their pantheon. They have the foreign gods, the Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth is in the plural. Ashtoreth is the, the, the goddess of the Canaanites. So they have plural Ashtoreth. They have Ashtaroth. They have multiple images of this feminine goddess. And it says the foreign gods, right? It's in the plural. So you have multiple images of the male gods. You have multiple images of the female gods. And you got Yahweh too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's one of our gods. He's a god. He's just not the god. We, we worship him more. They're just like the Philistines. The, the Philistines have Dagon as their god. And they have many other gods. They wanted to bring in the, the god of the ark. But they ran him off quickly because that was not compatible with the plagues that they suffered. But the Israelites, my point, are doing the same thing as the Philistines. This was a constant problem for Israel. They frequently adopted the gods of their false neighbors, the false gods of their neighbors, I should say. For example, Jacob's household worshipped Syrian false gods. One of Jacob's wives, Rachel, brought those false gods from northern Syria, which is where she was from. You can read about that in Genesis 31. Genesis 35, the Exodus generation that God did all of these mighty works for to liberate them from the, the hand of Pharaoh. They brought their gods, the gods that they had picked up in Egypt, they brought them with them. And so you read in Amos 5.26 where yes, of course, the Israelites sacrificed to Yahweh in the wilderness, but they also sacrificed to their pagan gods that they had picked up in Egypt. And the golden calf probably came from the Egyptian bull god, the Apis bull, the well-known Apis bull god. After this, right, after those, those different incidences of picking up foreign gods, the Israelites enter the land and they pick up the false gods of the Canaanites. That's what Samuel is giving here in terms of the first instruction of repentance. Remove them. Get them out. Get those false gods out. Then you get to the second instruction of repentance. He says, direct your hearts to the Lord, meaning submit to God with your whole person, because the heart is who you are. The heart is your inner person. Your words, your actions, those are simply an expression of what's in your heart. Right? When someone says something, that's what's in their heart. Then you get to the third instruction, and Samuel says, serve him, serve the Lord alone. The word alone is the key word. That's the key word in that instruction. Syncretism was at the core of Israel's problem. Syncretism, as we study, is just, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a Louisiana pot of gumbo. Right? You just mix it all together. You got some okra, you got some shrimp, you got, you got some crawfish, you got some tomatoes. You just mix them all together. That's what they would do with their gods. They'd just bring all the, the Israelites I'm talking about. They'd bring the, their foreign gods and they'd mix them with their worship of Yahweh. They weaved Yahweh worship into the worship of the foreign gods that they had picked up from their neighbors. Yahweh, however, is exclusivistic, as we studied last Wednesday. And so to worship Yahweh and worship other gods is to not worship Yahweh. 
You can't worship Yahweh and other gods. You cannot worship Jesus and the God of power or pleasure or sex or entertainment or equality because then you're not worshiping Jesus because Jesus is exclusivistic. You're worshiping an imagined Jesus when you include him in a pantheon of gods. Look at the word serve. In this third instruction, Samuel says, serve him, serve Yahweh alone. Serve is the Hebrew word avad, closely related to the, to, it's the Hebrew verb avad, closely related to the Hebrew noun eved. Eved is a servant. Avad means to work, to work for someone, to honor someone. It even means to worship. Moses used this word in Deuteronomy 6, 13 through 15, where he says, you shall fear only Yahweh your God, and you shall worship. Literally, you shall serve Avad, him, and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God, meaning God tolerates no rivals. He does not tolerate rival worship. He does not to- tolerate rival gods. He tolerates brooks, no rivals. This is what it means that God is a jealous God. He is utterly intolerant of any false worship or false gods. When we serve the Lord, we work for Him. We work for Him, which is to say we worship Him. And when we serve idols, idols, which, what our, which is what our culture feeds us all the time, even if it's an intangible idol. idol. When we serve idols, we work for them, which is to say we work for demons because demons are ultimately behind idolatry. We worship them. We worship the demon. We don't know the names of the various demons that are behind the different idols that we have in our culture, but the Scripture is clear that demons are ultimately behind idol worship. We worship demons even unknowingly. In verse 3 of 1 Samuel 7, Samuel is reminding Israel that they must serve Yahweh and Yahweh alone. In their idolatry, they have forgotten this. So Samuel ends verse 3 with a promise. What he says is, if you will return to Yahweh, that's the language at the beginning of the verse. Then the end of the verse says, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. The principle that runs through the Scripture that often we ignore, either willfully ignore or we just kind of wander off because other things are more shiny to us, the things of the world. The principle that runs through the Scripture is that obedience always precedes blessing. Obedience always precedes blessing. No obedience, no blessing. And God takes this principle and He magnifies it for Israel because they have special obedience where he guarantees special blessing for them in the Mosaic Covenant. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Is the Mosaic Covenant kind of boiled down to its most concentrated form? Next time, we're going to see how Israel responds to Samuel's instruction. It's in verse 4. But we'll see that next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that you have memorialized for us. We ask that you challenge us by them. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.